Open your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. When I was uh, a little guy going to Sunday school, I learned a little song, maybe like some of you had learned, that uh, said, he's got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> whole world in his hands. He's Come on, I need help. Whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. You know, that's just, uh, uh, aren't you impressed with my singing? That's, I'm glad I had the experts over here, the talented ones. But that is great truth, that he has the whole world in his hands. That I think of a quote that I use a lot, and you've heard me out use it, but it never uh, seems to tire, is from uh, R.C. Sproul says, if there is one renegade rogue Adam running in the universe, God cannot be God. God is in control. And, and, you know, when we look at our surroundings, our world, our culture, if you're like me, at times you think, boy, this place is out of control, right? And sometimes we say that, but we know that God has it all under control. And Psalms 2 if you have your Bibles or phone, tablet, however you access Scripture when you come here, I hope that you're engaged. And, but the title of this morning's message is that he's got the whole world in his hands from Psalm chapter 2. You know, there really hasn't been a time since the fall that the world has not known strife from the beginning. The history of humankind is a history of war. Uh, after World War I, it was uh, called, uh, because of the devastation of World War I, it was called the war that would end all wars. Well, not quite. Uh, World War I, about 20 million people worldwide were killed, and soon after, the world was locked in another major World War, World War II, and some 60 million lives were killed in World War II. And then, of course, in our own nation, there's the Korean War and Vietnam and uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and Kuwait. And again, around the world, whether you're in Northern Ireland or South Africa, Lebanon, Israel, uh, Afghan Afghanistan, India, I mean, you name it. In fact, I actually Googled to find out currently... Uh, how many right now today of, of the world, countries, people, groups are engaged in some type of war or conflict, and there is approximately, not approximately, about 60 countries or nation groups or small groups within nations that are currently right now engaged in some type of warfare and conflict. 60, 60 right now around the world. Many of them uh, one, some of these, when I was looking at, I didn't even recognize some of the territories and countries or groups within the nations that are fighting and waging war against each other. You know, even in our own country, we celebrate this weekend Memorial Day and give God thanks for the freedoms that we enjoy because of those who gave their lives to secure those freedoms, but yet we still face 
uh, strife and issues in our own country. We have racial tensions. We have uh, a continual rising crime rate. We have gang wars. We have pandemics, uh, random violence, moral degeneracy. I mean, on and on. It seems as though the world is out of control. You think, could it ever get any worse? And I have a suspicion, yes, it can always get a lot worse. Someone uh, wrote this, and I thought it sometimes sums up the feelings that we have, a little, uh, a little ditty, if you want to call it that, that reads this way. God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side is winning. Do you ever feel like the rats are winning the rat race, as they say? The world is not out of control, and Psalm 2 is helpful. You know, uh, I've had to limit my intake of even news, the quantity of news and information that I get, because I find that over time, and especially the repetitive cycle, everything is an alert, everything is a major issue, you know, uh, that after a while it just begins to wear you down, and you just begin to be discouraged. I, I read a little thing in a story where a wife said to her husband, shall we watch the 6 o'clock news and get indigestion, or wait for the 11 o'clock news and have insomnia? You know, whatever the situation, uh, we live in a disturbing times where things seem to be uh, spinning out of control. Psalm 2, if you have your Bibles open, we're not going to read it all together. We're going to walk through it and read it as we go and, uh, and kind of work our way through the Psalm chapter 2 in just a moment. But in Psalm chapter 2, to give you a little introduction, Psalm chapter 2 is... Uh, uh, attributed to the author of, of the psalm by King David. Uh, and King David, uh, we actually have that affirmed in the New Testament by uh, Peter and John in Acts 4.25 where they quote Psalm chapter 2. And that David, as he penned this psalm, was writing as a... Remember what the psalms are. They, the psalms in the uh, among the, the Jews and the early church is its worship book. It was a book of worship. It was the hymn book. It was the book where we said last week when we looked at Psalm 1 where the intimacy, it was the Psalms are written to engage us with God perhaps in, in a way that the other books do not. And so the Psalms written, and in the Psalms you have, you have raw feelings, you have raw emotions. And so here in Psalm chapter 2, under the inspiration of the Spirit, King David was writing, and what seemed to be a world out of control to whether sometimes you think, is God on an extended vacation? Is he paying attention with what is going on here? David, as I said, under the inspiration of the Spirit, shows us that God has a plan, and he has not failed, and he won't fail, and that God has the whole world in his hands, that it's under his sovereign control, and that God, through Jesus, will ultimately triumph in his ordained time. As I mentioned, that Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament. In fact, it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm chapter 2. So that should 
give us a little alert or heads up to its significance and its importance in relationship to Scripture. Last week when we looked at Psalm chapter 1, in uh, Psalm chapter 1 the theme was a contrast between the righteous person and the wicked person. In Psalm 2, the theme is a contrast between the rebellious, wicked rulers and nations and the rule of God, and more specifically, the rule of God through the Messiah. So Psalm chapter 2, as we get into it, is going to portray this ongoing rebellion of this world that we're in that is a rebellion against God and against his son. It's interesting that Psalm 2, penned by David roughly a thousand years before the birth of Christ, speaks about Jesus, speaks about Christ. And so this morning is just a way to kind of break it down. We're going to look in verses 1 through 3 about the nations who have rebelled against God. And then verses 4 through 9, that even though the nations have rebelled against God, we're going to see that, uh, not yet, uh, go back, uh, that we're going to see that God is sovereign and has a predetermined plan to judge man's rebellion. That God has a plan to judge man's rebellion. And then in verses 10 through 12, how we must submit to him while there is time. So three truths, if you're uh, taking notes or have a great memory to help you uh, just kind of bridge this and understand this psalm. Notice with me, first of all, the rebellion against God. This is in verses 1 through 3, the rebellion against God. The nations, the Bible says in verses 1 through 3, the nations have rebelled against God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's a word, that's a picture of a rebellious people, a rebellious earth, a rebellious nations. Now, on one level, as I said, uh, this was written by David, on one level, this is a psalm that connects and applies to King David. But as you understand, a lot of times in Scripture, especially Scripture that has a prophetic uh, bent to it or a prophetic nature to it, there is duality sometimes in Scripture. There's an immediate context, but there's also a future context. There's an immediate reference, and in this case, the immediate audience or the person speaking is David, But as we're going to see in just a minute, the psalm goes way beyond David's experience. It just can't be limited to just David. Interestingly, uh, the rabbis, historically, Jewish scholars, always attributed Psalm Psalm 2 as a messianic psalm. You know what I mean by messianic psalm? A psalm that speaks of, in, in a prophetic way, a symbolic way, of Messiah. And we know that Messiah is Jesus. And that pretty much was the standard uh, rabbinic uh, commentary and authority that, that Psalm 2 was indeed speaking about David, but yet its bigger picture uh, was about the Messiah. Interestingly, as years 
and the church and conflict and rejection of Messiah, that it's interesting that about the 1200s, uh, that there began to be a change among the way the rabbis interpreted Psalm 2, that they said, no, 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 it, it, it can't be anything to do with the Messiah. It just is about King David. You see why they would do that because of the way that, he, that the New Testament and Christians that followed tied in Psalm chapter 2 as a direct line of fulfillment to Jesus Christ. So they want to kind of like push up against that and say, no, 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 it's just about David. It's not about a Messiah. It's just about David. Well, uh, nevertheless, it can't be just about David. And in verse 2, it says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel. That ultimate fulfillment of these words says at the latter part of verse 2, that this is set against the Lord and his anointed. That anointed speaks about this Messiah, this one who would come. And that's not David, uh, the anointed one. Under, as I said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David wrote this psalm not just about himself, but yet the Holy Spirit took these words and applied them in a deeper, much more complete way to give us a little preview of the coming Messiah that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is a word, verses 1 through 3, about the rebellion against God. That is the collective picture of the world, the nations, humanity is in rebellion against God. And you know where rebellion originates from. The source of rebellion, the Bible is consistent that Satan is the author of this rebellion. He's the inspirer. He's the instigator of rebellion. You remember in Isaiah chapter 14, which uh, again is a, is a picture, and again it has that duality of interpretation in its immediate context. It's speaking about the Babylonian king, but yet uh, we understand it also applying and giving us some insight into the rebellion of Satan in heaven against God. Isaiah 14, verse 12, I'm not sure if I have it on the screen. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Your version may say morning star. How you are cut down to the ground, you laid the nations low. You said in your heart, again, this is uh, speaking of Satan's fall, you have said in your heart, I will ascend. Satan said, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Satan says, I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend, Satan said, Lucifer says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. That Satan, in his pride, rebelled against God. That's where all rebellion, where is the source of this rebellion of the nations, of the earth? Where does it come from? It comes from Satan. He is the author of this rebellion. But yet, not only is the author of this rebellion, but there are adherents to this rebellion. There are followers of, of, uh, of this rebellion. Not just a third of the angels that, I think it's in Revelation 12, that says, fell with Satan from in judgment when he rebelled, but it says that collectively the earth, the nation, sinful humanity, if you will, has followed Satan 
in this rebellion. Collectively, as a result of our sinful predisposition in nature that we have followed, either passively uh, or actively, we are followers outside of Christ of this rebellion. Our nature, our nature outside of regeneration is a nature that is rebellious. You remember in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell or sinned when they were uh, succumbed to Satan's temptation and rebellion and disobeyed God, the Bible tells us, and Romans 5 is one of the clearest applications, that because of that fall, all humanity that would follow fell under God's judgment. We are by nature, the Bible says, children of wrath. You see this, uh, this rebellion really illustrated in an early story in Genesis chapter 11 with, this is after the flood, that the story of the Tower of Babel. You ever heard somebody say, what are they babbling about? Well, that's where that comes from, the Tower of Babel. Do you remember what took place there? In Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, it says that the whole earth had one language and the same words. They all spoke the same, the same language. And yet the Bible says there in Genesis 11, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it, that they came together and proposed that they would build a tower with the intent to make a name for themselves. That they would build a tower that would ascend into the heavens. And the picture is, is that we are going to ascend and make a name for us as a humanity, and we're going to build this tower, and we're going to ascend to heaven and kind of in a, in a, in a rebellious uh, way, we are going to ascend up there and we're going to dethrone God, if you will, from the heights. Certainly a Satan-inspired mission. Well, God had a real creative way of disrupting that plan, didn't he? I just always think that would be interesting to watch how that came together. Um, but the Bible says that God confused their languages and as a result scattered them, and as a result of what took place in Genesis 11, that we see the beginning of nations based around their languages. And the pride, this is why I use this as an illustration, as a picture of the nations, of the earth, humanity's rebellion against God, is that that pride of those at Babel that sought to make a name for themselves, the pride of man, uh, that uh, God uh, uh, diluted that, if you will, uh, by the scattering and the confusion of the languages. But yet, the Bible is also clear that Satan works through these nations, through the pride of individuals. All nations are is a collection of people, aren't they? And so he works through these nations. He works through world rulers to weaken the nations. You know, the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns a people. So we could say the opposite of that, right, is that unrighteousness does not exalt a nation, but unrighteousness tears down a nation. It destroys a nation. Going back to Isaiah chapter 14, one of the things that uh, the uh, uh, judgment there in verse 12, and I think the New American Standard is what I have on the screen that we read earlier, but this verse is from the New American Standard. 
how speaking about Lucifer, see, uh, speaking about that fall from the heavens, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. And look at this, speaking of Satan, you have weakened the nations. You know, it's interesting how there are some nations that in their history have had a history where it seems to be one layer of evil upon another. Right? You look at the history of a people and nations, it doesn't mean there may not be uh, glitches here and there where you had, just like even Israel, you had a righteous king every now and then, and you had some bad kings. Most of them seem to be bad kings. But then you would have these nations around the world that have never experienced uh, a spiritual renewal of seeking after God. It doesn't mean all the individuals there or there's not Christians in these nations, but I'm just saying nations as a whole. You know why? Because they're led. There's something that takes place in a nation. When a nation is led by the ungodly, what do you have in its laws and its expressions? You have ungodliness. You have rebellion against God. We in our United States, we have moved not just from advocating sin, but now we have encoded sin and rebellion into our very laws. It isn't just an advocating of equality or whatever the, the euphemism word is popular today or politically correct, but actually signing into law by a president, that which God calls an abomination. Do you not think, do we not think, that collectively as a nation, that God's ju- we were going to be free from God's judgment? I don't think so. It isn't that will God judge us. God is judging us. And we need to wake up and realize what is happening. All rebellion... All rebellion, the psalmist says, these, the re- reb- rebellion of the nations is instigated not from God but by Satan. You know, as you consider even biblical prophecy, and Psalm 2 is prophetic in nature about Messiah, not just in his first coming, but it's also prophetic in his second coming as well. But biblical prophecy shows that in the end times, the nations will come together, united under the Antichrist, capital A Antichrist. Remember, 1 John says there are many Antichrists, but then there is an Antichrist. There is a picture in Scripture of a single ruler who will come that will be inspired by Satan himself, that all the nations will gather around and submit themselves to in submission and defiance of God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's in the Bible. That's not out of, you know, some Stephen King novel. That's in Scripture, okay? Satan will be the main force behind the Antichrist, the very name, Antichrist, that is pictured in Daniel 7 and 8, 2 Thessalonians 2. 
the deception of the nations. But here's what I want you to keep in mind as we, as we go back to Psalm 2. Is that God is never caught unawares. God has had a redemptive plan from the very beginning. The redemptive plan of God isn't something God came up halfway through the Bible and thought, well, you know what? This isn't going well. I better do something else. No, God has had a plan and a purpose of redemption and victory from the very beginning. In fact, in Genesis 3.15, which is considered the first prophetic verse of picturing the coming of this Messiah, that even in the curse of Satan, the serpent, in the garden, God pointed the way to redemption. Look at Genesis 3.15. I, God is speaking here, and he's speaking curse to the serpent, to Satan, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, this one who will bring separation, he shall bruise your head. You see, the plan of God is that a Messiah, that's, that's a, we could almost say that Genesis 3.15 is a preview of coming attractions. Even in the darkest moment of humankind, God was not caught by surprise. In fact, God's plan in Genesis, 3, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 speaks about one who would be born of a woman, the Messiah, Jesus, that he would be bruised, he would be struck, he would suffer on the heel, so to speak, by Satan. That was the, the death, the death blow that Satan would instigate through godless people, as, as Acts chapter 2 says, Peter in his sermon, that through the hands of godless men, uh, people, that they would attempt to kill the Messiah, to destroy the Messiah. But Genesis 3.15 says, but this Messiah would literally bruise, or the literal Hebrew is, the Hebrew is crush, that this Messiah would crush Satan upon his victory and triumph over sin and by proof of being raised from the grave. Now, it doesn't say necessarily all that in Genesis 3.15, but we know the full end of the story. We know how this story ends, right? You go see a movie on Titanic, there's no surprise, right? You go see the movie Pearl Harbor, no surprise. There's no surprise. We know how this story ends, but we see that in the beginning... God has had that redemptive purpose and plan, and we see it even as we move in to Psalm chapter 2. Look at verse 8. And this is interesting because in this psalm, this messianic psalm, we see kind of this dialogue that's taking place. We see this dialogue between the Father and the Son, he says in verse 8, in the New American Standard I have, I think, on the screen, the, this dialogue of the Father saying, Ask of me, speaking to the second person of the Godhead, the Trinity, Ask of me, and, he, and the Father says, I will surely give you what? The nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. There's two ways that that will be fulfilled either through these nations willingly, and I say nations, I'm talking about the peoples in those nations, that, that either the willing submission 
that we submit and we come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We willingly submit to King Jesus and under his banner of authority, either it will happen through willing submission or, as the psalm says, it will happen under the judgment of Messiah. And this won't be a judgment that will provide opportunity for salvation. When that judgment comes, it will be too late. It'll be too late. In fact, you remember what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10? That at the name of Jesus, every knee, what? Every knee shall bow. Now, it says on, on earth and under the earth. The picture is, it doesn't mean that every knee ultimately will bow to Jesus as Savior, but every knee, picturing that, will bow to the authority of Jesus Christ. And you've heard me say it, and you've heard others, better to bow the knee to Jesus as Savior today than to delay and wait and bow the knee to Jesus as your judge in eternity. Acts 17, Paul says in that sermon before those pagans in Athens, he says the times of ignorance, Acts 17, 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, but now, he commands all people everywhere to do what? To repent. Because he has, look at the language, because he has, God has fixed a day that he will do what? He will judge the world in righteousness. How? By a man whom he has appointed. How do we know who this man is? Paul says, because God has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you see that Jesus Christ is the conquering King Messiah of Psalm chapter 2? Well, secondly, you may say, well, that sounds good, but where is God in all this rebellion? I don't see God much in the chaos in this world. Has he gone to sleep? Has he lost his grip? Has he lost control? No, the Bible in Psalm 2 goes on to show us not only about the nations who have rebelled against God, but notice secondly, the reign of of a sovereign God, reign, R-E-I-G-N, the reign, the rulership of a sovereign God. We talk about God being sovereign. Verse 4, Psalm 2, verse 4, notice that God doesn't even get up from his throne, this picture here, to deal with the vain schemes of rebellious kings. What does he say in verse 4? He who sits in the heavens does what? at these rebellious kings. He laughs. The ESV says the Lord holds them in derision. That doesn't mean that God doesn't get a, that God somehow gets some kick out of uh, man's rebellion with devastating results. Uh, one version has it this way that the the one who is enthroned in heaven, I think I have it up there, Psalm 2 through and verse 4 from the uh, one translation says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs in disgust. The Lord taunts them. 
Again, the Bible tells us that God takes no pleasure, Ezekiel 33, God takes no pleasure in the wickedness of people, but He wants them to repent and change and uh, and, ha- and change their behavior and serve Him and live. He wants them to turn back from their evil deeds. He doesn't take some perverse pleasure. But it just, again, is a picture in this psalm that as the rebellious world that we live in, the collectiveness of those who would exalt the pride of man and, and, and see themselves to break the shackles of anything that would, would hinder us by obeying God. Doesn't that seem to be our culture? Don't tell us about anything of any uh, absolutes. Don't tell us anything about God's laws. My, I am a law to myself, the world says. The t- one phrase that you, know, you hear people constantly say, well, my truth, my truth, God's laughter showing the foolishness of rebellion, rebelling against him shows us a couple of things. One, in this reign of our sovereign God, it reminds us that God is not in a panic. A lot of Christians live their lives in panic. God is not in panic. He sits in the heaven, verse 4, and laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, these rebellious nations and kings. Then, verse 5, He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Your version may say, my holy mount, speaking of the temple mount in Jerusalem, but also speaking about the heavenly Jerusalem of the Messiah who awaits in his full reign. Mighty men, mighty peoples, mighty nations may rise up and proudly think that they are great and powerful, but yet God laughs and says, you got to be kidding. That's the best you got. That's the best you can do. Who is puny man humanity to stand against and shake their fist against a sovereign God. Kind of as a freebie, sometimes I'll hear people say something, and I know who they attribute it, they'll say something like, you know, when I get to heaven, God's going to have to do a lot of explaining. That has got to be, well, I'll be kind. Really? You're going to challenge? I don't think so. John Phillips, who wrote, is a Bible teacher, used to be with Moody, he's in heaven now, in his commentary on the Psalms, wrote this in relationship to verse 6. Listen to what he says. I don't have it on the screen, so you'll just have to listen. He says, as though man, talking about man's attempt to rebel against God. He said, as though man, because he has successfully, because he has successfully orbited some hardware in space using material God has supplied and who has put a feeble footprint on the moon, as though man can compete with a God who has orbited a hundred million galaxies. As though man 
who has solved some of the uh, subtleties of the Adam and managed to scare himself half to death in the process can compete with a God who stokes the nuclear fires of a billion stars. No wonder this God sits in the heavens and simply laughs. Man, humankind, for all their technology and talents, for all the science and skill, for all the inventions, is still a man, mere mortal man, humankind. And God, and God is eternal, uncreated, self-existent, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere at once, infinite, infallible, holy, high, lifted up, worshipped by countless angel throngs, God laughs at men for being such fools. You ever contemplate God? You ever contemplate this God? That's what the psalmist is wanting to do. Daniel 2.21 reminds us that it is this God who sets kings up and takes them down. He puts men in authority. He puts people in authority. And he takes them down. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, exalted himself and God essentially gave him some temporary insanity where they kept him out on the back of the palace eating grass like a cow because he was crazy, lost his mind, and God in his mercy and grace gave him uh, repentance. And Nebuchadnezzar came to this place where he repented and gave himself to God. It's an amazing story. God God humbled him. God reminded him, just as though God reminded the Pharaoh of who is in charge. It's not your gods. I am God and there is no other. He is the sovereign one. There is nothing out of control. Hitler and his Nazi demons proclaimed a third Reich, a Reich that would last for a thousand years, which is interesting if you think about it. It only lasted 12 Remember the Soviet Union? Remember the Soviet Union as the kind of the mothership of communism to destroy God, to advance the cause of Marxism that Marx said that religion was the opiate, the drug of the people, that we're going to eradicate and create this utopia of a communist world and society, and there is still some nation. Actually, there's no pure communism. It's a joke. You know why communism doesn't work? Because of sin. People are inherently selfish. Uh, I don't want you to have equality. I want more than you got. That's a joke, right? How long did the Soviet Union last? 69 years, and then it just kind of fell apart. God, or I ask you, do you think God is concerned about man's rebellion? I don't think so. God not only is not in a panic, but here's the good news. God has a plan. God has a plan. In verses 7 or seven through 9, look at verses 6 through 7. God identifies 
his plan. He identifies this one that has, he has set in authority to rule and to reign. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 24? I was going to have you turn to it, but just make a note of it as a reminder. We're in Psalm 2, written maybe a thousand years before the birth of Christ, give or take a few years. Do you realize the entire Old Testament, as we saw in Genesis 3.15, I mean, Jesus is at the center of Scripture, Old Testament, and certainly in the New Testament. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 24, I believe in verse 44, on those after his resurrection, and he's walking on that road to Emmaus, and he comes along some disciples that are leaving uh, Jerusalem, and they're heading back home, and he enters that dialogue. It says that Jesus showed them everything concerning himself, beginning with the, listen to this, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. You see, the Old Testament is a Jesus book. The Old Testament is a book that exalts Christ. And the only way you understand the Jesus book is you've got to know Jesus and you've got to have the key of the New Testament to be able to read it backward and say, oh, that's who that's referring to. Because without Jesus, without those spirit-given lenses, you're like, oh, they're just talking about David. No, look at this. Look at verses 6 through 7, the person of Messiah. The psalmist writing again beyond David. In this dialogue, this is the Father in this dialogue. As for me, he's not talking about just David. Yeah, David was set a king, but there's something going on way beyond this. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, my holy mount. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Look at also in verses 8 through 9. Not just identifying the person of Messiah, but notice what this Messiah would do. The power of this Messiah. Verses 8 through 9. In this dialogue, the Father is speaking that to His Son. And the picture in, in this dialogue of the, the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, verse 8, ask of me, the Father speaking to the Son, ask of me, speaking prophetically, speaking beyond David's comprehension and knowledge, but the Holy Spirit's doing something in this that's beyond just David, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. These rebellious nations, I'm going to give them to you as a gift, your, your heritage, and the ends of the earth, your possession. The Father says, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's not meek, mild baby Jesus that's being talked about. It's not Jesus who is being given this inheritance it's speaking about this Jesus who will come again as the conquering king and the conquering ruler. Why is this an encouragement? Because this is not all that there is. There is a future that Scripture is clear about. 
that God is not only in control, but God is wrapping all things together for his glory. Does that bore you? Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, will bodily return to earth, literally, in power and glory, and this conquering, returning Jesus will crush all opposition. He will reign in righteousness, prophetically speaking, from David's throne. John had a picture of this in Revelation 19. Remember Revelation? Everybody loves to get into Revelation. Nobody knows what it means. Revelation 19, but look at this. I think we can understand what this means. Speaking and having this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ says about that great day that this conquering Messiah that would return, that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the what? And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Does that sound like Psalm 2 language? He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's God's plan for dealing with rebellious nations, rebellious people. That's God's plan for dealing with Satan and his forces. His plan involves the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, identified as the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who will physically and bodily return to earth in power and put down once and for all time the rebellion against God. And so what should we do? We should heed Jesus' warning. When Jesus said in Matthew 24, 44, Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you don't expect. And so we say, okay, so what? Well, the third and final point is our response to the Son of God. You see, God's Word calls for a response not just passive, that's interesting, but how will you respond? Our response is that in verses 10 through 12, that we are to submit ourselves to God and His anointed one. Who is His anointed one? Messiah, Jesus. That's who is being talked about in, verse, in, in Psalm 2. Look at verse 10 and 12 through, through 12. Now therefore, based on what has been said before, now therefore... O kings, O kings of these nations, O kings of these rebellious nations, this God is showing you his hand. He's showing you what is going to take place. So now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And do what? Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. That's a reverential fear. We talk about the fear of the Lord. Some people get confused. The Bible uses fear of God in two, two ways in the Bible. It uses the fear of God as reverential awe, but it also uses the fear of God as terror. 
We don't want to talk about that, but again, but it uses it in both ways. In this context, it's speaking about this reverential fear, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I love verse 12 in the ESV and the other versions. Look at the language there, the way the Hebrew brings it out. Kiss the sun. Your version might say, pay homage. Eh. Something about kiss the sun. Like, like you're bowing before the king and you're kissing the hand of the king. What is, what is symbolic to kneel before the king and to kiss the hand, the ring of the king? What is symbolic there? Is I am giving myself an entire submission to your authority. You are the king. I am your subject. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, it's not just the proud kings who are leading the rebellious charge of humanity of David's day. It isn't just the proud kings that David had to war against in battle. It isn't just those proud kings that are rebelling against the Lord and His anointed. It is speaking in Psalm 2 for all of us collectively as humanity. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all collectively lived in rebellion against the king. We have all gone our own way and said to God, what before Frank ever said it, I'll do it my way. Verse 10 and 12 reminds us that we need, uh, the scripture gives warning. Be wise. And I'm telling you this morning, some of you who are playing hopscotch between trying to live for God and living by the world's values, take warning. God is not mocked. The Bible says that all will submit and all will bow in submission. And as we said, either bow as Savior or bow as judge. And the response to everyone, to the Son of God, we're talking about how do we respond to the Son of God, is we are to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior. Can you believe the gospel right there in Psalm chapter 2? It's telling us about giving ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to receive the judgment that God imposed on Christ as better than waiting for the judgment to come upon yourself. It's better to receive the judgment that has been laid on Christ than to say arrogantly, pridefully, you know what, I'll take my own chances with the big guy. The anointed one, the son of David, is returning as a conquering king. And I believe that the signs of our times point to the coming of Christ. I don't have a date, don't have any books to sell, sorry. But you know, the disciples in Matthew 24 asked Jesus, 
What will be the sign of your coming? Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, in Hebrews 1 verse 2, written roughly about 65, 66, the years 65 or 66, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 2 says that we're living in the last days. They were living in the last days. So if they were living in the last days, we're living in the last of the last of the last last days, right? How much more should we pay attention, right? Jesus came the first time in mercy. But in Psalm 2, it says he's coming to bring wrath as the Father's instrument of judgment. But see, we don't have to As believers, if you're a Christian, we don't have to live in fear or even panic of such thoughts of the return of Christ. Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 4, But you are not in darkness. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day... For that day to surprise you like a thief. In other words, it's not going to surprise you Christians because you've been amply, not just warned, but you've been amply shown what God is doing. But you don't have to worry because verse 9, for God has not destined us believers for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Three quick things as we close this morning. You see, this is a message Psalm 2 is given to us for us to be confident that God is in control. To be confident that God is in control. That regardless of what Russia is doing, regardless of what China is doing, regardless of what Iran is doing, regardless of what the United States is doing, Regardless of all these things, God has got the whole world in His hands. And not only does He have the whole world, He does not take a blind eye to the sins and rebellion of this world. You see, without believing in God, I don't know how you deal with justice. and and I don't know how you do that. But God who is righteous will set things right in Christ. But notice three quick takeaways this morning. God wants His people to be confident this morning. Number one, confident that He is in absolute sovereign control over this world. And don't leave here without knowing that Psalm 2 is a reminder that God is in charge. You can be confident this morning as you leave that His eternal purposes in His only begotten Son, Jesus, are right on plan. Right on target. God doesn't learn anything. He never said, oops. He never said, oh, I didn't think of that. Oh, I got caught off guard there. I better do something else. God's purposes 
In fact, I would go beyond even Genesis 3 because John in the book of Revelation speaks about the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. That tells me God knew things before they ever played themselves out. God didn't learn anything in Genesis chapter 3. God already had a sovereign, eternal purpose in which Jesus Christ was center stage. And third, we can leave this morning in confidence that if I place my trust in Jesus, I will be safe and secure now and for all eternity. Look at the way verse or Psalm 2 ends in verse 12. They could find verse 12 for me. Blessed are all who do what? Take refuge in Him. Are you taking refuge in Christ today? Are you taking refuge in the one that the Father has given all things as an inheritance to His Son? Take refuge in Christ this morning. Come to Christ. Let's pray.